Good morning, family. We are glad everyone's here worshiping with us this morning as we are continuing our journey through the book of Acts. Um, so before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word. That we can open it, that we can know you, that we can see how you have acted and, and led your people throughout the generations. We can see the testimony of the saints that have become, bef- have become before us. And so, Lord, we just pray for this time as we di- dive into your word, as we focus on what you have for us this morning, that we can see your gospel clearly, that we can see you clearly. That you can show us what we need to be shown, and that you can teach us what we need to be taught, that you lead us in the ways we need to go. And Lord, we thank you for this. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church fights are ugly. They're ugly because we don't expect them to happen. We, the church shouldn't be fighting with itself. They're ugly because there's a closeness, a connection among the church that we just don't expect for conflict to happen. Church fights are ugly in the same way family fights are ugly. When you love each other and you're really close to each other, when you're spending time with each other, stuff happens. They're ugly because unity among believers is so prized and so is commanded by Jesus himself. Church fights are ugly because our unity is actually a testimony to the surrounding world about what we believe and whose we are. But all too often, we hear about churches fighting with each other. Fighting over maybe changing the color of the carpet. Fighting over which hymnal to use. Or what worship songs to sing. Fighting over all these other small stuff that seems to escalate and we wonder why. I actually just read a story about a, a church down in Dallas that had a big church split. There's two factions within the church that started wanting to own the church property and the, and, and the church building, and so they're part of this denomination, and so they had this big, famous church split, or probably I should say a, a infamous church split, where it went all the way up to the denominational heads, and, and one side won, and one side lost, and so the losers went and planted their own church just down the street. And what was this church split all about? Well, an elder at a church dinner was served a smaller slice of ham than a child next to him, and apparently that escalated to the point of a church splitting. It's ridiculous. I call it infamous church split because this was a testimony to everyone around who read in the papers that this church was split over something so small. So insignificant it seems. Maybe one of you or many of us or all of us, I don't know, have been involved in a church fight at one point. And we know how ugly it can be. People get hurt. People wonder what's going on. Unity is broken so much more. Maybe you haven't experienced that. And that's great. And hopefully it never happens. Count your blessings. Because it's a sad state of fear when the church, when division starts happening within the church. We joke about church splits sometimes, like people fighting over the color of the carpet or, or make, being mad over these inconsequential things, but we joke because if we did not joke, we would cry because 
The unity is broken. People are hurt. The last, through, uh, the last few weeks, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we've been seeing the early church and how it's been growing and how it's been faithful to what God has called it to be. And it's being successful. It's growing, and, and people are flocking to come to know who Jesus is. But we also have seen how it's faced these kind of growing pains. It's faced these trials, these attacks that have come upon it. First, it takes it faced the attack of hypocrisy as uh, Ananias and Sapphira stood up and lied about what they were doing. Then it faced this attack of this outright, outright oppression from the council as the apostles were dragged before the church council and, and intimidated and beaten for preaching Christ. And now it's facing an attack that might be more insidious of all, of all the attacks. And that is division from within. And now a division starting within the church family that they have to face and they have to confront because unity in the church body is so important. And this attack threatened to disrupt that. And that is what we see in the book of Acts in chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to chapter 6 of the book of Acts. And we'll be in the first seven verses of this. If you don't have your Bibles, do not worry. It'll be on the screen for you. So it's now in, now in these days, when disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists ro- arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good re- repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote our, ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they do, chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It's a short little passage, but what do we see here? I would argue what we see here is faithful serving promotes the gospel. What we see here is that there's an ordinary, an orderly administration of the church that has to happen, and that was breaking down. People were getting hurt. People were feeling slighted. And so people needed to be served, and a faithful serving of the church actually promoted the gospel being preached to many more people. That a faithful serving and gospel proclamation go hand in hand. There were two sides of the same coin. So what we see here is a church operating as it should be, addressing a problem that cropped up. Faithful serving promotes the gospel. Because when you look at this passage, we see a situation crop up that threatened the unity of the church. We read in, church for, in, in uh, verse 1 that the church was increasing. The numbers of disciples were increasing and people were coming to know the Lord. And maybe we see, here's the first hint of what is happening is that they're experiencing these growing pains. That how a small organization operated is not the same way as a large or- organization operated. And so some things started to fall between the cracks. Some things maybe were overlooked or some things were just forgotten about. And what we see happening is a complaint arose. One group of people started complaining that they felt slighted by the administration of their church, and they wanted it addressed. And so we see 
the church in this situation taking care of those in need? What is this complaint? We have to look at what this complaint is. Is that there's a certain group of people who felt that their widows were not being taken care of in the daily distribution. If you remember through the book of Acts, we see how the early church has has uh, provided for those who are in need. People were selling off possessions and they were giving to everyone who needed, making sure that no one that is lacking would be in need. And widows were a large portion of people in need during this time. For a widow implied that not only was her husband dead, but most likely they didn't have family around them to take care of. And a woman at the time with no husband, no family, had no means to, to meet her needs. There was no way she could earn income. There was no way she could provide for herself. And so now the church stepped in to meet this need, and they were passionate about making sure no one who had a need would go without. But now a complaint arises. Some widows are not being taken care of, they say. And so we have these two groups, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And the Hellenists says, you're not taking care of our widows, but the Hebrews' widows seem to be taken care of. And these two groups, these two factions, you might say, within the church are, 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 are based on ethnic and um, really, actually, we're say cultural boundaries. Because you have to remember, at this time, the church was almost 100% Jewish. But there were some Jews who had been in the land longer, who spoke Aramaic, some Jews who really were culturally of the near Middle East, and so they were the Hebrews, identified as the Hebrews. But this other group of Jews, people who probably moved back into Jerusalem recently, for, because remember the Jews were dispersed throughout the whole empire. And so some Jews who had been living in other countries, maybe living in Greece, maybe living even in Rome, and they had taken on the mannerisms and the culture of the place they were living, and so they were called the Hellenists. And these Jews had recently moved back into Jerusalem, but yet the, the Hebrews probably looked down on them. Oh, you're not really Jewish. You speak Greek, and you think like a Greek. You don't speak Aramaic and think like a Jewish person. But they were ethnically Jews, and they had moved back, and so they looked down. And so now this complaint arises, and the Hellenists feel maybe their widows are not being taken care of. Why? Because they're Hellenists. We don't know if there's, there's no indication whether that's true or whether this mistake of taking care of their widows was just done, um, you know, a mistake or had been done on purpose or maybe it just fell through the cracks there's no indication of that, but what they see is that a group felt neglected. A group within the church felt slighted. And so tensions were rising. And the apostles knew that this had to be addressed quickly. It had to be addressed correctly. So we can see a few things from this, from this passage. And we can see first and foremost, as I've already said, the importance of unity. The unity is stressed again and again through the Bible. And it's amazing. If you look at, it, if you look at the early church, what did they stress was unity, that we love each other as a church family, that we took care of each other. And in the early church, we saw this again and again, that they would sell their possessions. They would care for each other. They would minister for each other. They made sure no one was lacking. Unity was so important. And so this was not a small problem. We can make fun of this like, oh, so, 
Some people weren't getting their daily distribution. Why would they fight about this? But this was a huge problem because it spoke to their unity. Were some of the church being neglected or not? And were people feeling slighted or not? And so broken unity was happening. Divisions were creeping up. People probably were looking back towards this old identity of being a Hellenist or a Hebrew rather than looking at their identity in Christ in the new church. And the apostle said, this is not right. It has to be addressed. And so they stood up to address it. And we can see how they responded quickly and how they responded. I think it's so important that they, they responded quickly because we're so often quick to sweep things under the rug. We don't like conflict. I don't know about you, but I don't like conflict. And sometimes I feel like if I just don't address the situation, it will magically heal itself and go away. But they realized the importance of unity so much that like, it has to be addressed. And so what did they do? It? How did they address it? Well, they had a good old church meeting. The Baptists actually used this. I don't say Baptist in a derogatory term. I'm basically a Baptist. But they, the Baptists used this to actually prove that the congregation should be ruling the church or guiding the church. Because what did they do? They gathered the whole number of believers together. And you've got to remember... That was a couple thousand at this point. I don't know where they gathered these guys together, but they gathered the whole church together and they laid out the issue and they sought the wisdom of the congregation. They sought the wisdom of how do we handle this conflict. I think an added bonus of gathering everybody together is like, hey, you Hellenists, hey, you Hebrews, tell me your side of the story. Let's talk about this. What has been happening that they can have unity in that in this conflict they can have this unity they, and they responded quickly to this need and they responded as they sought wisdom from people who were in the midst of it so we need to learn from this for our own self as we seek to honor god as we seek to protect the unity of our church that we know that things need to be addressed when they need to be addressed in the appropriate matter Again and again, we see in the Bible that if you feel offended, what should you do? Should you go talk to that person who offended you and you work it out? And if need be, you bring your brothers and sisters around you to help you do so. You protect the unity of the church. It's why gossip is forbidden in the New Testament church. It's why you don't talk bad about people because that destroys and erodes and breaks down the unity that we bring stuff out in the open and we address it, and we also need to learn that we seek wisdom about it. That when we step into a situation, we talk to the, to the, the parties and we seek wisdom and we, we together seek a consensus on how we can move forward together in unity and in love. Maintaining that unity, but seeking that reconciliation and looking back, not at these other things that might define us, but looking back to Christ who makes us the church. Which brings us to the solution the apostles offer. The, the solution the apostles say is, hey, let's select seven men and have them take care of this. Let's select seven men with these qualifications to take care of this daily distribution, to take care of taking care of the church. And the apostles didn't do this because they felt somehow serving tables was below them. When we read this passage, I, I'm so tempted to put my own inflection in it. And, and, and I love how the apostles say when they're talking to the whole church, and they say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. I put my own inflection in that. Like, 
we're, we're, we're preaching the word, and so we can't serve tables. There's no indication of that in the text. In fact, I would argue that they saw this problem so important, they say, hey, let's select seven people and look at the qualifications. They have to be full of the Spirit, just like we are. They have to be full of wisdom, just like we are. They have to be people who know Christ, who are believers, who care for the church. These people need to take care of the church, and we need to do it. Why did they do this? Well, because the apostles already had a full plate they were already ministering to the word. They were already in prayer. And this is probably why this thing slipped through the cracks in the first place is because they were trying to do it all. And things happened. They said, no, let's select seven people. Men who are full of the spirit, full of wisdom, who can handle this for us. And so notice the value and worth that they place on this act and this position. For they have these qualifications that they be of good repute, they have good reputations. That when people look at Stephen, or they look at Philip, or they look at those other people we don't even mention because their names are hard to say, <laughs> they look at these people and they say, this person knows Christ, cares for his church, and will be able to operate this and do this job well. They were full of the Spirit, meaning that they were seeking to live for Christ and that depending upon Him, that they truly were believers, Christian. And they were also full of wisdom, meaning that they weren't incapable of doing this job. They had the ability, the capacity to do what they were called to do to serve the church. They were wise in this. When you look at these qualifications, this, they called these qualified men is interesting because a lot of people look at this text and they, they see it as kind of the first indication of the, the, office, the church office of deacon. A lot of people look at this and say, well, these are deacons being formed because deacon just means servant or to serve. And so looking, this is it. And so whatever this is, this is a proto-deacon, this people stepping into a position of serving the church. And when you think about that, people, the, the, the requirements of that position are always throughout the Bible upheld really high. But when you read in 1 Timothy, when it says the, the qualifications for elders, which are pastors, or the qualifications of deacons, they're almost identical, except for there's an emphasis for elders to be able to teach or preach. And so they held this position really high. They were expected to be men of integrity, men who, could, who lead the church through service. And so what do we see in this? And their value and worth, we see, well, the value of administration. It's being made clear. We don't sometimes think administration is that glamorous or maybe even valuable. But it's so important. It's why, actually, God, and, and, and through 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12, lists among the spiritual gifts that he's designed people to be able to organize effectively and take care of his people. And so it's upholding the value of administration that actually God does not just say, hey guys, love each other and leave us to figure it out, but he actually has equipped us and people within his church to help take care of his church. And so we see the value of administration, men who are commissioned to this task. We also see the value of serving, which I think lends itself to the value of all sorts of ministry. That not only the preaching of the word is important, which is important, but we all see that serving and taking care of the church is important as well. 
And fundamentally, I think it shows us just how big the gospel is. The gospel. The fact that God created this world, he created humanity as a pinnacle of his creation, but yet, through the lies of the enemy, Adam and Eve went astray. They rebelled against their creator. They spit in his face. They did their own thing, and because of that, sin entered the world, destroyed our, and tainted our world, and is now all of humanity, descended from Adam and Eve, which is all of us, now have this condition of sin. And God solves that condition by sending his son to live the righteous life we could not live, to die the death we all deserved, to rise from the grave showing us the life that awaits us in conquering death. He gives all of this to us. This is the gospel. What these people go and proclaim and what people were flocking to the early church to hear. The good news that God saves us. That's big, right? But it also has huge implications even beyond that. For when we grasp what the gospel is, it changes us. When we grasp what the gospel is, we no longer can look at people and just see them as people in our way or people we can ignore. We see people made in the image of God, people who need to hear who Jesus is. When the gospel grasps hold, grabs hold of us, it changes and there's implications that, that run throughout our entire lives as our entire life is now reordered to love people and proclaim the gospel of who Christ is. It, this, so we see the huge implications of the gospel. That taking care of the church and feeding the church, yeah, it's not in, in the center of the gospel but it's a huge implication of what happens when people gather in the name of Jesus Christ. That they love each other well and they serve God because he has saved them. It's a natural result of the gospel at work. Well, that's what this, I would argue, is showing us, but what is it not showing us? I don't think it's showing us a hierarchy. That there's no indication that somehow there's preaching the word and prayer and then serving the tables. Okay, so well, we can move your hands up. It's not that big of a difference. No, I don't think there's any hierarchy. I think it's saying the church needs to operate. And I argue this because when we look back to Acts chapter 2, what did the early church devote themselves to? To the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, to prayers, the prayers. And when you think about it, what does the serving of the church do? Well, it's addressing the fellowship. There is no fellowship. There's no unity when people are fighting. And so they're saying, this is what we need to be devoted to, the church. And we need to make sure we're loving each other well. And so we need to get people in position to make sure people are taken care of. No one falls through the cracks. No one feels slighted. No one feels hurt because we want unity. The fellowship is important. And so we see there's no hierarchy here that actually faithful serving promotes the gospel. Because when the church comes together and they're served and they're loved and they're loving each other, the world sees this. And the world says, that looks enticing. And they want some of that. They should. What this also does is explodes any concept of secular versus sacred. So often, we get in this mindset that there are some things that are just more holy. 
I have to fight this continually because people like to say, oh, pastor, you, you know, you're doing holy stuff. I'm like, yes, that's true, because we all are. There is no secular and holy. God does not look at something and says, oh, I command your prayers, I command your preaching, but then all the rest is yours. No, he looks at every square inch of our life and says, that is mine. Do it for my glory. Do it for my sake. Do it well. Serve at everything as if you're serving for the Lord. And so there's no secular or sacred. And this, I think, we'll say, no, we have to look at all these things and see that our whole lives, serving tables, or preaching the word, is used by God. Our whole lives is used by him. I love how Martin Luther, the reformer, said, every occupation has its own honor before God. Ordinary work is a divine vocation or calling. In our daily work, no matter how important or mundane, we serve God by serving the neighbor, and we also participate in God's ongoing providence for the human race. That we're part of God's plan on how he, he's running this world and taking care of this world. And when we're serving the neighbor, we're used by God in great things. William Perkins, a Puritan, put it like this, anyone can serve the Lord, whether it be sweeping the floor or shepherding the sheep. And so what we see this is the value of all the church operating as it's supposed to to operate, serving as it's supposed to. So we need to learn from this. That there's value in the ministry that you're shaped to do. That's the language you use here at River Valley is that you're shaped for a ministry. God has designed you to be shaped for a certain ministry. Some people, God loved them, are over there with the kids because they're shaped for that ministry. Some people have a smile on their face and are jolly. I wish I was like them. And they're shaped to greet you at the front door. Some people are shaped to be behind the scenes, and if you put any spotlight on them, they would wither away and say, don't even dare, because they just want to serve their church. And so how you're shaped for ministry, that is what you're called to do, and that is how we serve God in the church and out of the church. We're designed by God to make great his name. This also means that we don't compare. That when we look at how we're shaped and we look at someone else's shaped, we don't compare and we don't say, man, I wish I had their gifting, but rather we look at what God has given us and say, how can we honor God with what he has given me? And we walk in that. Because faithful serving promotes the gospel. Because that's the result we see. Verse 7 of this text is, gives us the result, and it's actually almost like this little little um, um, segue as it says, hey, the church is increasing, the, the church is doing what it's supposed to do, and so what we see, the word is increasing, people are coming to know who Christ is, that the gospel is being promoted and proclaimed. Why? Probably because this faithful serving is taking place, at least there's a connection there, and it shows us that when the church body is operating as the church body should operate, the gospel is being proclaimed and people are being reached. And it's, it's just funny, this is just a thing that has, I puzzled over there, and I, I looked at commentaries, I can't figure out why Luke records this, but I love that he does. He records that there's a great number of priests who start being obedient to the faith. And I love that because I think, well, yeah, they should be, because these priests should know the truth. They know the word. They should be the one, one of the first ones to come, but maybe now they're realizing it sinking in as they see the church operating as it should. They realize the truthfulness of it. 
And I imagine the priests, as they're operating as a priest and taking care of the nation of Israel, as they're going through the sacrifices, and they're hearing Jesus preached out in the temple courts, and all of a sudden, it clicks. He's the true sacrifice. He is the true priest. That was not just the priest, but the sacrifice himself. And what I'm doing here is just a shadow of him. That pointed to him. That points to the ultimate reality. And they were being converted to obedience to Christ as they realized who he was. Faithful serving promotes the gospel. So how do we respond to this passage? How, what do we learn and that what should we do? Well, I think it, as I said, it shows us the value of serving in, in ministry shows us the, the, the aspect that the church needs every member of its body working together to make the church function. I think that's true for the individual local church as well as the global church. It needs the members of its body operating in a way which honors God because if you only have a few people of limited talents, stuff doesn't happen. Things can fall through the cracks. People can be hurt. And so it says we need people who can play in the band. We need people who can serve in the kids. We need people who can serve behind the scenes. We need people who can welcome people. We need all these different elements, these different giftings to come together to make a whole body for Christ. For he is the head and we follow him. And so we need these things. We need the church to be composed of these different people who give strength in their diversity. So we can look at this and say this is an urging for us to find our place to serve. Because we need to remember when the church operates, when it's ministering, when it's even it's preaching the gospel, it, it serves because we're all in this together. I, I remember reading, or maybe I was listening to a, a, a lecture, but it's about leadership, and, and this, this uh, leadership guru was talking about how he was going to this famous clinic of the this, this surgeon, um, and he's going to teach, go through his, his leadership team, kind of teach some leadership principles. And he was walking into his clinic, and he saw the janitor. And so he struck up this conversation with the janitor, and he says, well, what do you do here? And the janitor says, well, the doctor and I fix hearts. Because this guy trained for this, this, this clinic, they caught the mentality that they're all in this together. Yeah, his part of fixing the hearts was, was over here, supporting what's happening, but he clearly saw that they're all in this together. And I just always thought, and it's, it's, it's that urging that the church needs to see the value of us all being in this together. Because we're quick to say, oh yeah, well, I just fold bulletins. Or, oh yeah, I just make the coffee. Or, or I just do this. But it all serves to make the church what it needs to be and glorify God as we come together and serve Him as He's called us to do. Because how does the church stay faithful? How does church become successful by staying faithful? It happens when the gospel is proclaimed. It happens when the church is unified. And it happens when the church sees this ministry as its own. That this ministry is not just with the staff or not just with the elders or not just with the leadership. This ministry is the church's ministry. That we're in this together to serve together, to glorify the God together, and that it takes all of us further this ministry and to be part of what God is calling us to do.
which means do you want to see your church family grow? Do you want to be part of this church family in a healthy, unifying way to help the gospel spread, to preach to the nations, to preach to our neighbors next door? Then that means we need to serve. That we find that place where we can serve. It means we need to support. That if you're a member of River Valley Community Church, that you support the testimony of this church by living for God outside the church and preaching his name there, as well as in here and loving and supporting the ministries that go on here. And then we need to share that we declare the truth that changed us to all who would hear. That we declare the truth of the gospel to all who have ears. That if we need help, we grab a brother from, or sister from here and take them with us. If we need help, we invite them to come in. And then we have a lot of people here going to flock over them and make them feel really loved in here. Because that's what we do. We need each other to continue the, to continue the ministry that God has given us. So we serve, we support, we share. Because faithful serving promotes the gospel. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are.